Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home. The place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. This is a hospital during the siege of Aleppo. From the looks of it, maybe an exhausted father, a distraught mother, and a child at left curled up on a gurney. That was an airstrike. This hospital was hit 14 times in six months. You work with the understanding that you might find yourself dead or, or crippled or dismembered on the floor next to the people you're trying to save. When the fog rolls in over San Francisco, the skyscrapers live up to the name. Among them, the Millennium Tower, 58 stories of opulence. Opened in 2009, it was the tallest residential building west of the Mississippi. Though priced in the millions, inventory moved quickly, attracting tech barons, bankers, and San Francisco football hero Joe Montana. Yet for all its curb appeal, the building has one major fundamental problem. It's sinking into mud and tilting toward its neighbors. How did you get from Kentucky to the top of Hollywood? desperation. At just 27, Jennifer Lawrence has already been nominated for four Academy Awards, winning one. You are not a stand-up guy right now. She has starred in a range of movies, but in her latest, she does something she had always avoided, nudity. It's my body and it's my art and it's my choice. And if you don't like boobs, you should not go see Red Sparrow. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. 
Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. Bashar al-Assad destroyed Syria in order to remain its president. The dictator, son of a dictator, has committed every war crime on the books, bombing civilians, gassing neighborhoods, torturing prisoners. An estimated 500,000 people have been killed in the civil war, and 12 million have been forced from their homes. At the end of 2016, with his allies Russia and Iran, Assad occupied the ruins of Aleppo, Syria's largest city. As we first reported last fall, various rebel groups continue to fight, and Assad means to break them with another war crime, the destruction of hospitals. What you're about to see is difficult to watch, but it's worth it, because standing in Assad's way are courageous doctors, many of them American volunteers, risking their lives to heal the wounds of war. This is a hospital during the siege of Aleppo, from the looks of it, maybe an exhausted father, a distraught mother, and a child at left curled up on a gurney. That was an airstrike. This hospital was hit 14 times in six months. This is Aleppo again months later. Al Jazeera reporter Amro Halabi was covering the aftermath of a chemical attack. Once the ER filled up, the hospital was hit. The nursery was evacuated. Then the camera found the neonatal ICU. Targeting hospitals is the atrocity that started the Geneva Conventions 153 years ago and led to the creation of the Red Cross. It is the original war crime. Since 2011, there have been more than 450 attacks on Syrian hospitals. Emergency medicine has been driven underground. Every neighborhood airstrike delivers too many patients with too little time. Doctors improvise with scavenged drugs and salvaged equipment. So many doctors have been killed or have fled that veterinarians and dentists are pressed to do surgery. You work with the understanding that you might find yourself dead or, or crippled or dismembered on the floor next to the people you're trying to save. Dr. Samer Attar is a leading orthopedic surgeon from Chicago who volunteers in Syria's makeshift hospitals. The 
bombs would land so close, they'd, they'd knock you off your feet. And at times, they would directly hit the hospital. But uh, all I did was look around and, and, and follow everyone else's lead because they're like, they're like rocks. They don't lose their cool. They don't lose their composure. They just, they just keep working. Dr. Attar enlisted in the Syrian-American Medical Society. So far, it's normal. Which began in the 1990s as a professional association, but since the revolution, these American doctors have raised nearly $150 million in aid and sent more than 100 members into rebel-held Syria, including Aleppo, where Dr. Attar worked. We'd find ourselves doing surgeries, sometimes without anesthesia, and people lying on gurneys uh, in the hallway because you're just so overstretched. Say hi, everybody. These are Dr. Attar's pictures of Aleppo. I remember another child that was brought in. She couldn't have been more than five. Um, her whole body was pockmarked with shrapnel from her chest to her belly. And one of the surgeons in Aleppo, a Syrian surgeon, heroically rushed her to the operating room and, and opened up her belly and stopped the bleeding in her liver. But she had lost so much blood. We, we can't, you can't give all of your blood to save one life if you can save it to give a little bit each to five who you know will make it. And I saw that all the time. Did that little girl make it? That girl? No, she did not. Seeing little bodies wrapped in white shrouds with the cloth still bleeding, because the bodies still bleed, they'd be wrapped in white shrouds and just placed outside to be taken to be buried. Six-year-old Mohammed Kemet was destined for a burial shroud until a Syrian surgeon saved his life. Mohammed's house had been hit by a mortar, and he became unforgettable to Samaritar. I remember him because um, he lost his mother and um, his siblings and uh, both of his legs. The day before I left Aleppo, he asked me to bring back robotic legs, prosthetic legs, if I ever returned. Um, and if only were that, that simple, he thought that I could deliver them like a pair of gym shoes and that everything would be back to normal. He'd go back to running around and, and playing soccer. It's the worst humanitarian crisis in our lifetimes and because those are our own people. Basil Termanini is vice president of the Syrian American Medical Society. He's a gastroenterologist in Steubenville, Ohio. He told us that the society donated 120 ambulances, pays the salaries of more than 2,000 Syrian staff, equips 150 medical facilities, and is building more. There have been more than 500 attacks on healthcare facilities, and we had more than 800 casualties from the staff. Uh, so we're trying to move all those facilities underground. Did you say 800 medical professionals have been killed in attacks on hospitals? Yes, more than 800. I think now it's the latest is 850. Uh, there are attacks on hospitals. There are people are detained, tortured to death. Um, there are shelling also, mostly airstrikes and barrel bombs. This is the number one uh, killer for the health staff. Who are some of the men and women who work with you inside Syria? Those are our heroes. They know they're risking their lives every day, risking their families' lives. But they know if they migrate and go out, nobody is willing to provide those services. So then we try to support them. Whatever they need, we try to fulfill. What they need is to know that they are not alone. How many trips in does this make for you? This is number four. We traveled into Syria with Dr. Attar, 
The road to Aleppo was in the hands of an Islamist rebel group known as Harar al-Sham. Our route was through Idlib, the last whole province still at war. We found a hospital hit by an airstrike, but somehow still running. On the darkened but functioning side of the hospital, how are you? Samer Attar spotted Abdurham Ghanem. They had worked in Aleppo before its fall at the end of 2016. It was a massacre. Yes. A massacre. So much bodies, so much injuries. We did our best. Which is all you can do. Yes. It wasn't enough, but uh, what we could do. Aleppo's underground hospitals were hard to destroy, so Assad tried to root them out by doubling down on his war crimes. We found two witnesses to this, Dr. Farida, who performs cesareans on wounded women, and her husband, Dr. Abdul Halak, an eye surgeon. They couldn't destroy this building, so they used a chemical weapon uh, in the last two days of the siege. We noticed uh, the smell of chlorine, and uh, we rushed all of the staff, all the patients, to the inner room in that uh, basement. And during this uh, time, many uh, children came to our hospital, and uh, we had just uh, one remaining bottle of oxygen. Uh, so we had to uh, transfer the mask between the children, one uh, small amount of oxygen for each other. No one died in the chlorine attack, but the gas shut down the hospital for a time. Now, more sophisticated underground hospitals are being built by the Syrian American Medical Society. In the countryside, they're excavating a cave to replace a regional hospital that serves more than 200,000 people. The operating rooms are where? The main two. These two? Yeah. The cave was already here. The limestone had eroded away over thousands of years. Then the engineers came in, they cleared out the cave, and they lowered this floor about six feet. When the hospital's finished, it will have three operating rooms, 12 inpatient beds, and a state-of-the-art emergency room. This is much bigger than the basement I worked in in Aleppo. The Syrian American Medical Society has spent more than three and a half million dollars on cave hospitals. The monies come from private donations and the United Nations. Fragments of the bomb. Bomb fragments, the little white spots. For every life saved, he's going to need several more surgeries. There is a lifetime of recovery. So the Syrian American Medical Society supports this hospital on the Syrian border inside Turkey. It is a safe place for long-term healing. A lot of these patients had very severe injuries, such as, you know, severe, very extensive burns. Tamer Ghanem is a surgeon from Detroit who re-sculpts the disfigured. He volunteers when he can get away about a week at a time. One of the most important things is the face, is how people identify themselves. But there are also functional aspects uh, to that, uh, things like being able to open your mouth so you can get a spoon inside your mouth so you can feed yourself. What can you do for these people? 
It's very rare that one surgery would fix everything. Some of the surgeries I cannot do here just because of limitation of the equipment. I mean, some of these injuries are so horrific that really you're not able to rebuild uh, uh, face back again with, with the tissues that that patient has. It must be frustrating for you to see these patients in so desperate a need and you not being able to help them. Yes, it's very hard. Absolutely. Especially the children. Mm -hmm. Especially I have my own children and it's very difficult to see children, uh, you know, with those injuries and their parents and how that affects them. One of those injured children in the Turkish hospital was Mohammed Kement, the same boy from Aleppo who asked American doctor Samir Attar for those robotic legs three years ago. This was the first time they had seen each other since then. Mohammed's prosthetics were supplied by a New Hampshire-based charity called New Day Syria. We asked Mohammed what he wants to be, but we could have guessed. He wants to be an orthopedic surgeon. I'll bet you'd be a very good doctor. Thank you. You understand patients really well. Thank you. The Syrian-American Medical Society says that over seven years of war, it has delivered more than 100,000 babies and supported almost 400,000 surgeries. What's his name? Shusnek. No. Why risk your life for this? Well, the Syrian nurses and the doctors, the, the rescue workers that I met um, told me that they would rather risk their lives dying in Syria, trying to save lives, than, than grow old comfortably from a distance, watching the world fall apart. He's going to be okay. And um, I thought 20 years from now, I, I didn't want to look back and say that uh, I wasn't a part of that. The war against the hospitals is designed to break the will of the rebellion. But as long as some will fight for mercy, there is reason for all to hope. It's a story as old as cities themselves. Prosperity comes to town and triggers a building boom. In modern San Francisco, rows of skyscrapers have begun lining the downtown streets and recasting the skyline, monuments to the triumph of the tech sector. Leading this wave, the Millennium Tower. 58 stories of opulence, it opened in 2009 to great acclaim, then the tallest residential building west of the Mississippi. Though priced in the millions, the inventory of posh apartments moved quickly. Yet for all its curb appeal, the building has, quite literally, one foundational problem. It's sinking into mud and tilting toward its neighbors. Engineering doesn't often make for rollicking mystery, but San Francisco's captivated by the tale of the Leaning Tower and the lawsuits it spawned. As we first reported this past fall, it's a story positioned, albeit at an angle, somewhere between civic scandal and civic curiosity, an illustration of what can happen when zeal for development overtakes common sense. When the fog rolls in over San Francisco, the skyscrapers live up to the name. The Transamerica Pyramid, long the gem of this skyline, now dwarfed, quaint as a cable car. The new Salesforce Tower stands as the tallest building in town, Nearby, Facebook signed a record-breaking lease on this building. And across the way, the Millennium Tower at 301 Mission Street. 645 feet of reinforced concrete wrapped in glass. 
Inside the $550 million construction, as advertised, lavish condominiums flush with amenities, attracting tech barons and venture capitalists. San Francisco royalty, former 49ers quarterback Joe Montana, bought here. It's a wonderful location. So did Jerry and Pat Dodson. Ten years ago, they paid $2.1 million for a two-bedroom and planned to live out their retirement, enjoying the sweeping view from the 42nd floor. Everything I had read indicated that it was the best building in San Francisco. It had won numerous awards. It had particularly won awards for construction, which was very important if you're thinking of moving into a high-rise. Initially, no buyer's remorse. No, Absolutely. not at all. I mean, in fact, buyer euphoria. One feature the Dodsons hadn't counted on. These devices are what? They're stress gauges. and they're Dozens of stress gauges dot the walls of the Millennium Tower's basement. They measure in millimeters the slow growth of cracks along the columns that rise up from the building's foundation. There's a, enough of them, a, a spider web of, of cracks, that you have to be concerned about what's going on underneath. These cracks are one of the only visual clues that there's anything profoundly wrong here. These are the rounds you do now. Yeah, I've, I've been told by structural and geotechnical engineers that I should be watching. Both an engineer and a lawyer, Dodson makes daily rounds of the basement looking for signs of deterioration. It's a routine he's kept since the Homeowners Association called a meeting of residents in May of 2016. They just said we should be there and made a sign in which alerted us at that time that there was something serious. So what, what was the nature of that meeting? It was the first time we were told that the building was sinking and was tilting. Engineers have tracked sinking here since the day the foundation was poured in 2006. Nothing unusual about that. Here's what is unusual. Their data shows the Millennium Tower sinking 17 inches so far and tilting 14 inches to the northwest. Let me ask you this. What do you think is going on? Why is this happening? What can be done about it? Once news got out, local politicians seized on the story. I don't know. And the very engineers celebrated for the building's design suddenly were being compelled to explain why the building was moving. If you'd like to speak, please do approach the mic. When the Millennium hearings opened to public comment, it brought some livelier moments. I think what's needed here in the city by the bay, where everybody thinks everything's okay, but they might want to hear what I got to say. This, after all, being San Francisco, a city once described as 49 square miles surrounded by reality. Aaron Peskin has a certain vitality himself. A longtime city supervisor, he starts most days with a swim in the bay, then meets constituents at a North Beach coffee shop, where the Millennium Tower is a popular topic. Peskin is leading hearings into what is causing the trouble. You subpoenaed some of the engineers involved with Millennium Tower. Why? We don't generally like to subpoena people. That power has not been used by the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for some quarter of a century. In 25 years, you've never issued a subpoena before. That's correct. When you got them in here, what'd you learn? Their answers were less than satisfactory. Nobody has owned up to why this building is not performing. Some homeowners aren't waiting around to find out. Andrew Falk and Frank Jernigan, who worked at Google when it was still a startup, got all the answers they needed when they rolled a marble across their floor. We didn't do it but once, and this is what we got. We were shocked when that thing stopped, turned around, and started rolling back, back to where the building is tilting. The northwest side. I thought, 
we don't know if this building's going to stand up in an earthquake. And so I became severely frightened of that. And we got out and we left. We left really all, most all of our belongings. We just left. The couple sold their apartment last year and moved to a two-story home in the Pacific Heights neighborhood. We sold it for approximately half of what it was valued at before this news came to light. You lost seven figures yes. on the sale of this apartment. That's yes. right. I would say we lost three to four million dollars. Speaking of astronomical figures, half a world away in a suburb of Amsterdam, San Francisco's sinking tower came across the radar of Peter Marinkovich, an engineer who works with the European Space Agency to track earthquakes. Using signals from a satellite 500 miles above the Earth, Marinkovich measures ground movements around fault lines. In 2016, he happened to be studying the Bay Area when something caught his eye. This is obviously downtown San Francisco. What do the green dots represent? Green dots represent uh, stable no displacement or no significant displacement. Stable structures. Stable structures, yeah. And the red dots? Few red dots means something's going down, something's settling, something's subsiding, something's sinking. Did you know what it was? No. Had you heard of Millennium Tower before this? No. Ever been to San Francisco? No. What, what can you tell us about the rate of sinking? It's in a ballpark of between 1.5 to 2 inches a year. 1.5 to 2 inches a year? Yeah. And there's nothing to suggest the sinking and tilting are slowing down, much less stopping. But is it dangerous? Last summer, the city of San Francisco and its engineers asserted the building is safe, even in the event of an earthquake. Even so, and this is a central theme to this saga, there are as many opinions about the trouble at the Millennium Tower as there are engineers in the Bay Area. There's a lot of things about this building that are unprecedented. Jerry Cawthon, one of those local engineers, did not work on the tower but has worked on nearby projects. Some sinking for buildings is acceptable, right? Some is. They actually anticipated that over the life of the building it would sink about four to five inches. That's like a hundred year life. This, this is double and triple that. Yeah, I don't think they, they obviously didn't anticipate anything like this close to it. By they, Cawthon means Millennium Partners, brand-name developers with high-end skyscrapers all over the country. Cawthon says their big mistake was building Millennium Tower out of concrete instead of steel. Concrete is often cheaper, and it's just as good, but it is a lot heavier, so you've got to design your foundation and your subsurface to support that higher weight. What lies beneath the surface at 301 Mission Street is critical to the story. It fell to Millennium's geotechnical engineers to analyze the ground below and design an appropriate foundation. They went with a foundation driven 80 feet deep into a layer of dense sand, and the city approved the plan. Larry Karp is a local geotechnical engineer. He did not work on the tower either, but specializes in Bay Area soil conditions. What is under the ground here? What is under the ground here at the surface is rubble from the 1906 earthquake. Brick and sand and debris, everything you can imagine is, is down here. You have to go 200 feet below the Millennium Tower through layers of history in the ground, below landfill from the time of the gold rush, sand, mud, and clay, to reach solid rock or bedrock. Carp says the fact that the tower's foundation isn't anchored in bedrock, well, that's a problem. For a big, heavy building, a concrete building, those foundations have to go deeper 
For a building like this, they have to go to bedrock. Otherwise, he says, the structure will sink into less sturdy layers of sand and mud. And because it doesn't sink or settle uniformly, you get tilting. Look at the whole line. Carp told us he can see the tilt from the middle of Mission Street a few blocks away. We couldn't see it, so we asked Jerry Cawthon if he could. No, no, it's very hard to see. It's not enough of a tilt to see. This is not like the Leaning Tower piece of it. <laughs> and there it is, the inevitable comparison to that greatest engineering gaffe of them all. Not the landmark any present-day developer wants to be associated with. Millennium Partners declined our request for an on-camera interview, but pointed out their tower was built to code. They blame their neighbors, specifically construction of the Transbay Terminal, San Francisco's answer to Grand Central Station, right next door. Transbay declined an on-camera interview, too, but told us Millennium had already sunk 10 inches before work began on their project. And right on cue, here come the lawyers. Lawyers for Millennium Partners, for the Transbay Terminal next door, for the tower's structural engineers and geotechnical engineers, for the architect and the builder for the Homeowners Association and for the city, and yes, even for Joe Montana. There are 20 parties to various Millennium Tower lawsuits and counting. It takes a half an hour just to take attendance of the lawyers in the courtroom. I mean, literally. A lot, so, a lot of billable hours. A lot of billable hours. Courtroom circus aside, we asked Aaron Peskin, the city supervisor, simply, what's going on here? Everybody is afraid to tell the truth, because if we get to the bottom of this, they are worried that it is going to, in some way, slow down the building boom that is ha happening in San Francisco. Time is money in construction, and we don't want to stop this frenzy. Absolutely. Absolutely. This drama has hardly had a chilling effect. Everywhere you look in downtown San Francisco, they're building another skyscraper. And the latest must-have amenity for all these new constructions, bedrock. In what might be the first act of building-on-building building bullying, tech giant Salesforce stuck it to Millennium via Twitter. Bedrock, baby. You think that was in reference to what's going on across the street? I don't think it was in reference. I know it was in reference because I know the people who built that building. The city still doesn't require all skyscrapers to go to bedrock, but it has made some changes to prevent another tower from leaning. More review of foundations for new tall buildings, for one. As for the Millennium Tower, on this, almost everyone agrees. It needs to be fixed. What do we do with a tilting, sinking building? I've heard freeze the ground. In perpetuity, freeze the ground. Perpetually freeze the ground. Perpetually freeze the ground. They've talked about removing 20 stories from the top of it to reduce its what weight. Do you, what do you think of that? L lopping off, God, lopping off the top 20 stories. That sounds like a horrible mess. I think more likely, if the surest way is to get it on piles to rock. Bedrock. There may be no avoiding it. The parties are in mediation, debating just how to drill down to bedrock under an existing skyscraper with a 1,000 people living upstairs. And then there's the indelicate question, who pays for all this? I am hopeful that the city and Millennium and the Homeowners Association will implement a fix in the near term and fight about the money later. But time's ticking. Since our story first aired last fall, engineers have begun drilling beneath the Millennium Tower. They're testing a proposed fix for the tilting building, 
one that would extend the existing foundation all the way to, you guessed it, bedrock. Still, no agreement on who will pay for the fix. Jennifer Lawrence is one of the most popular, highly paid actresses in Hollywood, one of the biggest movie stars in the world, and she's only 27. She's the youngest actor ever to be nominated for four Academy Awards. She won once for Best Actress. She can give dramatic performances or romp through madcap comedies, a range that gets her compared to Katharine Hepburn and Meryl Streep. As we first reported in February, Jennifer Lawrence took an unconventional path to Hollywood, a risky and surprising part of her story. We found a young woman with a fiercely independent spirit, living a life she could only have dreamed of growing up in Louisville, Kentucky. How did you get from Kentucky to the top of Hollywood? Desperation. Um, an appetite. Confidence. Um, an ambition. You really wanted this. I, I knew if I just was given the chance that it would work. I just knew. But not even she knew it would work so well. For a decade in Hollywood, she has been defying odds and breaking barriers. At 21, she shattered the myth that women can't carry an action franchise. Her four Hunger Games movies earned almost $3 billion. She made three comedy dramas in as many years, playing unforgettable, flawed, resilient women. Hey! Whoa, hey! Tiffany, a young hell? widow in Silver Linings Playbook. You are not a stand-up guy right now. If it's me reading the signs, you if it's me signs? reading the signs... You're reading the signs? Oh, okay. In American Hustle, <laughs> she played Rosalind, a loony Long Island housewife. You fell in love. Don't you dare forget that part. We fell madly in love. And in Joy, she was a desperate mother turned entrepreneur. It's the only mop that you're ever going to buy, the best mop you're ever going to use. She earned Academy Award nominations for all three movies. I'm just the crazy slut with a dead husband. <laughs> and took home the Best Actress Oscar for Silver Linings Playbook. Hey, Tiffany... But Jennifer Lawrence is not one to rest on her laurels. I am hard on myself. <laughs> Why? I get paid a, a huge amount of money to be able to do what I love. So you're the one putting this pressure on you. Yes, too many people sacrificed so that I could be here. My parents you know, changed their entire lives to support me. And I, I worked too hard to get here to be stupid about it. Lawrence's father owned a construction company. Her mother ran a summer camp. She told us her two older brothers pretty much ignored their annoying little sister. Did you used to play act when you were growing up? <laughs> oh, yes. I was constantly performing. But we just didn't know that that meant I was an actor. I just thought, you know, I was a weirdo. But I understand that you pretended to have a problem with your leg at school. Who told you that? Oh, we've got our sources. <laughs> in school, I told everybody I had a wooden leg. <laughs> and I, like, walked in a very consistent limp. Like, incredibly consistent. And when my mom came to get me from school, my teachers were like, it's awful. What happened to Jennifer's leg? <laughs> and my mom was like, 
<laughs> she does not. <laughs> she's her leg has not been amputated. I used to just invent <laughs> stories just to invent them. She used zany antics to hide the fact she was a poor student, hyperactive, didn't fit in. She could drive her parents crazy. My parents were just, you know, they would go through periods of time where <clears throat> they just wanted me out of the house, and it was called a lockout. And so I'd go to the door, and it was locked, and I'd be like, all right, got to find something else to do <laughs> until my parents are ready to deal with me again. Uh, you were a handful. <laughs> I was a handful. <laughs> and I got it. We never fought about it. <laughs> I've always been very self-aware about my annoyingness. She told us she felt lost in school and dreamed of becoming an actor. At 14, she badgered her parents to visit New York, where improbably she was discovered by a modeling scout, then given some scripts to read. I've struggled through school. I never felt very smart. And when I'm reading this script, and I feel like I know exactly what it would look like if somebody felt that way. That was a whole part of my brain that I didn't even know existed, something that I could be confident in, and I didn't want to let it go. What was it you wanted so much? It's so hard to explain. It was just an overwhelming feeling of, I get this. This is what I was meant to do, and to get people to try to understand that when you're 14 years old, wanting to drop out of school and do this, and your parents are just like, you're out of your mind. Did you finish up high school? I dropped out of middle school. I don't technically have a GED or a diploma. I am self-educated. Do you regret that? No, I really don't. I wanted to forge my own path. I found what I wanted to do, and I didn't want anything getting in the way of it. And even friends for many years were not as important to me as my career, I mean, from the age of 14. That stubborn determination landed her a role in a sitcom. When her parents saw her happy and focused for the first time, they agreed to accompany her to Hollywood. She never went back to school. Spell house. At 18, she wrangled the lead in a small, bleak, independent film called Winter's Bone. I don't know what to do. It was a breakout performance that earned her first Oscar nomination. There's not a lot of dialogue, but yet your presence fills the screen. It was really just feeling, believing, you know, in this situation, look at it through her eyes, and then that's always going to come across in your eyes, in your face, in your, in your body language. That empathy, you can channel that into acting. Yeah, I mean, that's how I act. That's really my only tool, I think. No acting training? No. It's just empathy. Yes. Is that difficult or easy for you to do? It's easy. To just let go of Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, because that's when you get the high. That's what I crave, that really getting lost into something, being almost possessed by another emotion. That's the adrenaline rush. That's the high that I can't live without. In her latest movie, Red Sparrow, Lawrence stars as a Russian ballerina coerced into being a spy. It calls for nudity, something she thought she'd never do after she was traumatized when her most private pictures were hacked in 2014 and spread across the Internet. Well, you told us you didn't like doing movies with a lot of sex in them. 
but Red Sparrow is all about sex. Why'd you change your mind? I read this script that I'm dying to do, and the one thing that's getting in my way is nudity. And I realize there's a difference between consent and not. And I showed up for the first day, and I did it, and I felt empowered. I feel like something that was taken from me, I got back and I'm using in my art. And that hacking incident, did it just vaporize? It didn't vaporize, but I did feel like I took the power out of out of having my my body taken from me. I felt like I I took it back and I could and I and I could almost own it again. Are you worried that audiences won't see it the way you see it? I was, but it doesn't matter. It's my body, and it's my art, and it's my choice. And if you don't like boobs, you should not go see Red Sparrow. <laughs> After making two movies a year since the age of 20, Lawrence is taking some time off. Aha! My whole silver! She wanted to go fishing, something she's always found relaxing. So we found a trout lake in Anaheim. <laughs> Here, away from paparazzi and the pressures of celebrity, we found her playful and fully aware she's a 27-year-old in a high-wire act with the whole world watching. It's problematic for you to go out into the public? I just have to, like, prepare a little bit. It's always the one day that you look like crap that a paparazzi just jumps out from behind a car and you're like, oh, it looked so cute yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Does the fame sort of lock you in? It does, but like my favorite activity is sitting by the fire, drinking wine with my girlfriends. That's why you're coming. Girls night with Bill. Such it's a, a gritty, gritty night. Yeah. This is good. She invited us over to meet her three closest friends, Laura, Justine, and Lauren. They've known her since long before she became a movie star, and she says they keep her sane. So you're like her rock? foundation. We are her security guards. We're much more security. Yeah, emotional yeah. security yeah. guards. Yeah. They tease her. No, she yeah. cannot. I yeah. told her. I told her the other day. I'm like, you know, your classic dance moves. But she got so mad at me. Yeah. She said, yeah. I don't do that. I don't dance. And like then that. she goes, Wait a second. <laughs> this feels like home. Yeah. <laughs> when Jennifer left the room, her friends conspired. Ooh, should I bring him the self portrait? <gasps> It was a masterpiece she'd painted at 16, a self-portrait. Oh, my God! No! no. What is it? Do it! What is it? I did not know it was going to go that far. I mean, that was... That was literally really jumped over me to get <laughs> to this picture. That. God, talk about laughing therapy. That seems to be kind of central to who you are. Laughing? The laughing. And oh, the gotta have it. You gotta have it. I gotta have it. It's her defense against the brutal cutthroat side of show business, which has been on conspicuous display recently, with shocking allegations of sexual harassment and assault. Lawrence has added her voice to the Time's Up movement and spoke to us about Harvey Weinstein. He produced her Oscar winning movie, Silver Linings Playbook. Was he ever inappropriate? No. He was never inappropriate with me. But what he did was criminal and deplorable. And 
when it came out and I heard about it, I wanted to kill him. The way that he destroyed so many women's lives, um, I want to see him in jail. She was one of the first to speak out publicly about pay inequity in Hollywood. When it got out three years ago that her male co-stars in American Hustle had been paid more than she had, Lawrence wrote an essay blaming herself. Why not blame the studio? They're the ones who didn't pay you. Because I didn't fight hard enough. It was my own mentality that led me to believe that I didn't deserve to be paid equally. Would you do that again? <laughs> no. You feel you know your worth now? I feel I know my worth and I feel like I work to keep it that way. Does that translate into money and power? Yeah. I can work with directors who I've admired for a very long time and, and get a screenplay written. I have an amazing career, Bill. <laughs> but you do. There's a lot of risk, too. This is right now. This is all very temporary. Hollywood is very fickle. What, are you, are you, you're like the flavor of the month? I, yeah, I could be. If, I, if the next few movies don't, don't do well in the box office, I won't, I, won't, I won't get paid the same. That's the way it works. If you can't prove that you, that you deserve that number, then you're not going to get it. So it's very fickle. So I don't want to sound like I'm on a high horse because I might be on a tiny little Shetland pony in a month. <laughs> I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.